conservatives are really, really good about talking about the, the dangers of concentrated political power. For some reason, we've we've become seduced by the libertarians and have forgotten the dangers of concentrated economic power. There are political benefits to the antitrust laws. There are societal benefits to limiting the concentration of power in society. When when you have a concentrated industry and high levels of consumer dissatisfaction, people start asking, why don't I have more options? Mm-hmm. Well, there used to be this other company. What happened to them? They got bought. <laughs> what about that other one? They got bought, right? And eventually somebody's going to start doing the math and looking back at the, the history in various markets when they try to figure out why they don't have more options or better options. And it's because they've all been systematically acquired. And antitrust law is really meant to help deal with that. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and this week, it's just me. You know, I never actually became a lawyer, but I retained a nerdy interest in all of it. And so uh, when it came time to spurg out with my friend Mark Metter, we uh, decided to leave Nick at home. Uh, he is helping uh, as always, keep the trains running here at American Moment. Uh, before I get to our guest today, you can go to AmericanMoment.org to find everything else we have cooking. We're on our final weeks of AM Fridays, our summer lunch series on Capitol Hill. Send your interns over uh, to hear from them. Our Fellowship for American Statecraft is coming to a close. If you'd like to hire one of these fellows who have succeeded enormously this summer, please reach out to me at Sarab at AmericanMoment.org. You can find the backlog of this podcast, rate and review at five stars only. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and much, much more more at AmericanMoment.org. This week, we had on uh, a great friend. Mark is an antitrust authority with a rich tapestry of experience handling intricate antitrust matters for the federal government, clients, and legislators. With prior practice at the FTC and DOJ, he brings profound knowledge of the U.S. antitrust enforcement, notably as Deputy Chief Counsel for Antitrust and Competition Policy to Senator Mike Lee. He advised on policy, legislation, and oversight, orchestrating 21 subcommittee hearings and playing a significant role in the preparation of landmark antitrust bills. His expertise spans antitrust compliance, merger reviews, strategic communications, coalition management, and regulatory and legislative advocacy. As you can tell, I'm reading this bio off of his website for the boutique law firm that he has now helped found called Crescent Matter. Um, he is a free man, and that's why he was able to come on our show. We always love interviewing former staffers because that's so much of, of what we think about here at American Moment is how do you go in and make an impact and so to hear it from the horse's mouth, uh, I'll tell you, Mark has been extraordinarily influential on on all sorts of people in public policy and in the antitrust debate in Washington more broadly. I know for a fact that he is the sort of kitchen cabinet of experts that um, very, very prominent people call when they need to think through these issues. He's certainly the one that I did. Um, there is a news event hooking this, this podcast episode, the FTC and DOJ, Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice, for the people who aren't acronymed out the wazoo as as I find myself being these days in DC, they just released a new uh, draft of merger guidelines. This is a sort of document of values, essentially, that the FTC and DOJ under uh, Lena Khan and Jonathan Cantor have released explaining how they think about um, mergers and acquisitions in um, the economy. And it's uh, made all the right people very, very angry. And we thought we'd bring Mark on to talk about it. He actually had a snarky tweet that inspired me specifically to bring him on. Uh, he was getting into an argument about uh, about these guidelines with some 
you know, law libertarian or whatever on the internet. And uh, the person was saying, you know, the 2010 guidelines, they, they, they were the, the cutting edge of the views on, on the economics of antitrust or something like that. Um, and, and Mark just replied, I'm glad we agree that the 2010 guidelines were an advocacy doc- document because this is one of the criticisms that people make of Lena Khan and Jonathan Cantor and the others is that, um, they, they, what they put out as federal government guidelines reads like advocacy. Uh, those of us who have a more expansive vision of politics, uh, believe that that most politics and most governance is advocacy of one form or another. So we had a fantastic discussion on the merger guidelines and the state of antitrust more broadly. Um, for the growing network of lawyers that are paying attention to our work, this is this is definitely for y'all. But anyone interested in technology policy or competition policy or anything, even just broad economic interests, this episode is for you. This is mergers and acquisitions are an enormous part of how our economy runs and why the world we live in looks the way it does. You should pay more attention to it if you don't. And so we'll go now to an hour where you can. Mark, thank you for coming on the podcast. Glad to be here. We always like to hear about how our guests got to the point where they are today. You are newly uh, a freed jailbird from the U.S. uh, Senate. Um, Tell us the story. How does one become an antitrust lawyer who was a Hill staffer and is now a lawyer again? Uh, Tell us that 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 true tale. Yeah, I can give you the short summary of my career. Um, So I I came to D.C. straight out of law school to start at the Federal Trade Commission, where I was a baby antitrust lawyer, cut my teeth there. Um, The Obama administration? Yes. During the Obama administration, uh, John Leibowitz was chairman. Uh, It was great. Great time, you know, great agency, really, really enjoyed my time there. Uh, the last year, uh, it was about five years, I was there total. The last year of that, I had a fantastic opportunity to be detailed to the United States Senate uh, Antitrust Subcommittee. Um, so this is an arrangement where uh, the agencies will send staff to work for committee members uh, to kind of loan out, you know, subject matter expertise. Uh, and it was a funny, funny coincidence when we moved to D.C., my wife asked me, do you think you want to be at the FTC your whole career, stay in the government? Would you want to go to a firm? Like, what are you thinking? Um, I was like, eh, you know, I, I don't know. I, we'll see what happens. But I will say that I would love to work on the antitrust subcommittee. In the Senate. <laughs> uh, so one day, you know, email came around saying Mike Lee is looking for uh, a detailee to work in the antitrust subcommittee. Uh, and I was already a big fan of his. And this was sort of a, a dream opportunity. So I, I jumped at the chance, uh, was probably benefited by being you know, one of very few people at the FTC that had a reliably conservative resume. Uh, there were not a lot of us there, as you might expect. Um, so maybe had a, a head up in that way, but was fortunate to be given that opportunity and had an absolute blast. Did that for a year. Uh, then I went to private practice, uh, worked for three years at Paul Weiss. Um, Jonathan Cantor actually hired me off the hill at that time. So I worked closely with him and he was a real mentor uh, during that time. Had a, he's a fantastic boss. He was phenomenal to work for. Uh, and I learned a lot. After that, went back to government at DOJ. Um, at some point, folks in the Lee office heard I was back in government and said, hey, would you be interested in, in coming to do another detail? And I said, absolutely. Um, I've told everyone it's no secret. It's best job, most fun job I've ever had. So I was happy to do that. Got to a point where and after a year and a half, they actually hired me directly. Uh, and so for the last year and a half that I was there, I was a, a real Senate employee, had, had gone native. Um, and yeah, that was kind of how it played out. It's fascinating. So. I guess, what is the FTC actually like on the inside? Because I think um, with a lot of these agencies, people have a perception of what they're actually like, but um, it's usually very incomplete. And I think the FCC and FTC especially, I don't think people realize just how 
big the staffs are of these organizations. Give us a little bit of an ecology or a landscape of what the FTC is actually like. Yeah, you know, it, it was funny when I was an FTC lawyer, um, having somebody call up with an antitrust complaint and they would say something um, and they'd be like, well, you knew that, right? And was no, it was like, well, we told this other agency. And I'm like, yeah, but that was them. I'm like, well, aren't you all the federal government? Dog, there's 2.2 million employees I I here. Like, uh, unfortunately, interagency communication may not be what you expect. Um, so, you know, there's that element. It's every agency is sort of its own thing. You know, FTC and DOJ talk to each other, but still maybe not as much as you might think, at least not back then. Um, but I loved it. It was a fantastic place to work. Uh, I really enjoyed the what I was working on. You know, there's a lot of stereotypes about federal employees being lazy and overpaid and um, just all kind true. Of slacking. <laughs> well, I mean, look, there there are places where that's true, and I won't say there wasn't the the occasional bad apple, um, but it was extremely rare. Um, I mean, by and large, by far, everyone I worked with was very good at their job. They cared about it deeply, and they worked very hard. Uh, and when you consider that you're being paid half or a third what you'd make in private practice. Um, that means a lot. Like the people were there because they're invested in it. They care about what they're doing. Uh, they care about the mission and they want to see it succeed. Um, and I mean, it's a large agency in that it's a, a at the time, I think it was around a thousand employees, but that includes, you know, support staff uh, and divided up between um, the Bureau of Competition and the Bureau of Consumer Protection. Uh, when you actually winnow it down to the number of attorneys in each division there, it, it's it's not big. Um, you know, I think there were certainly law firms with antitrust practice groups that might dwarf an entire section or you know, a, a division <laughs> in the agency. And certainly when you got onto a team on a matter, you might have two or three FTC attorneys running something. And that's- And there's that's, 30 on the other side at right, Sullivan yeah, or whatever. I mean, <laughs> a lot of those are contract attorneys. They're doing privilege review and all of that. But, you know, one partner might have three or four associates that are helping prepare things. And, you know, I'm reviewing documents myself and then talking to somebody about them. So um, but that made it fun, too. I got to do a lot more work as a young FTC lawyer than I would have as a young law firm lawyer. Uh, you get a lot more responsibility, re responsibility very quickly. It's taking depositions as a second year attorney, things like that. So it, it was a fantastic experience. Very interesting. So the framing for our conversation today is that the United States Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission released what uh, they're calling their new sort of draft merger guidelines. Uh, there was an instant freak out about it. Um, I'm a moron and I don't understand any of this. Uh, explain what it, what did DOJ and FTC just do and uh, why does it matter? No, it's a great question. Um, actually, I had lunch with somebody today who asked that same thing and they were asking, are these precedential? Is there like Chevron deference or something uh, that the courts have to afford? And I was like, no, 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 no. It's, it's not like that. Um, I mean, guidelines are, are what the word means. Uh, it's essentially it's a policy statement. I think every federal agency puts out policy statements or guidelines that are meant to inform the business community and especially legal practitioners uh, as to how they in, uh, understand and interpret the law and how they plan to apply it so that there's guidance for their clients and for companies. They know what to expect when they're coming into the agency. Doesn't mean that that argument is going to win in court, which is what a lot of the debate's been about recently. Uh, but that's how the agencies are viewing it. So we've had several iterations of guidelines for the last 40 to 60 years. Um, and this is the latest one. Uh, previous guidelines were put out in 2010. Um, and you know those were viewed as being successful, right? And what they meant was that they were adopted by courts. So it wasn't that you know a court would come to FTC and DOJ and say, okay, well, what did you put in your guidelines? All right, that's what I'm going to follow. 
the reason they were successful was that they were accepted by the antitrust bar as well. And so you had enforcers saying, here's the framework, here's how we view the world and how we apply the law. And the defense bar saying, yeah, that, that seems reasonable to us. We agree that this is the test, right? These are the, the ways that we should look at these different questions and problems. And then we're going to argue over the, whether the evidence meets that standard. But everyone kind of agreed on what the standard was. And if you're a judge and you have two parties in front of you saying, we don't disagree on this, you're not going to touch it. You're thrilled, right? Okay, everyone agrees what the standard is, so we can go with this. Uh, and so then, because everyone accepted it, uh, found it as a useful paradigm, it became law in the sense that courts would follow that reasoning and it would be written into their rulings and decisions. And so then it's precedent. Uh, it's not that the guidelines themselves are, you know, by the fact of being issued now, uh, what everyone has to follow. Um you know, all of the freak out about like, oh, this is they're changing things or going back to this old. Nothing's changing until the court rules in their favor. And um, and what would you say were the operating paradigms or the zeitgeist of those 2010 guidelines? Um, well, it's funny because I think at the time they were viewed as being uh, more pro enforcement uh, than previous guidelines. Um, and whereas the view now is is that these guidelines are are strongly <laughs> pro-enforcement uh, and kind of make the previous ones look weak. Um, the way I distinguish them is I think the 2010 guidelines were almost more of like a formula, right? Like you could read them and say, okay, this is the first step in the analysis. Then they go to this, then they go to this. And it was almost like a flow chart. You could follow through how the agencies were going to uh, review and assess a merger. Uh, these guidelines don't take that approach. Instead, they say, look, you can't make sweeping, clean distinctions between one type of a merger or another. There's no buttoned up simple analysis that you can impose on increasingly complex markets. Um, but here are the principles that we use, right? Mm -hmm. Here are the different theories of harm and things that we're looking for when we're doing issue spotting, reviewing a deal. These are the different things that we're going to look at. It's not, I saw one very seasoned and famous antitrust scholar who should have known better uh, attacking the guidelines and saying, well, in guideline one, it says this, but it doesn't say anything about X, which is only in this other guideline. So guideline one means they're not going to consider it. And, and that's clearly not how the document was written nor how it should be read, right? They all interact. I think the guidelines are explicit about that, that these are a set of principles. They inform each other. It's not like there's one rule and we're only going to look at it under this one rule. And if you pass that, then we're fine because the others don't apply, right? It's a set of principles and concerns that are animating any merger review, um, which I think is, is a good approach. I think that's better than creating a more formulaic approach where you feel like you're really boxed in and you can't consider other theories that might come into play. I mean, it, it's almost a truism now, right, that we live in an increasingly complex economy. Um, big tech has, has made that abundantly clear. Uh, things are not just, you know, a manufacturer making widgets who sends them to a distributor, who sends them to a retailer, who puts them on the shelf and you buy them. Um, they're way more complicated than that. And so having this sort of uh, formulaic approach to merger law uh, it's just not going to work anymore. And that that was clearly uh, the position, you know, uh, uh, I think of both Jonathan Cantor and Lena Khan when they put these out, that we need something that can be more adaptive to what we face today. So if the previous guidelines were a formula to be reductive, would you say that this is better seen as a statement of values almost? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I mean, it's not purely that. It's not just pie in the sky. And no. Lena Khan had released her own like sort of statement of values right when she took the job sure. as chair of the FTC, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, these do articulate, I think, overarching values and principles is a good way to, to put it. Um, but there's there's more um, 
technicality in there as well. There is sort of like, hey, these are the different tests that we're going to use. They're still going to use the hypothetical monopolist test when they're trying to figure out market definition. They're going to consider, you know, efficiencies and benefits that might be applied. They're going to look at switching between different products, all these sorts of things, all the technical details that every antitrust lawyer is used to are still in there. I do think that the emphasis and priority of them has shifted, and that's probably what people are latching onto the most. One final thing before I ask you just more details about what what exactly is in the guidelines. If this is, and this seems to be broadly understood to be the case, a description of the values motivating the agencies at this moment in time, even if you oppose um, Lena Khan or Jonathan Cantor's approach to antitrust, wouldn't not releasing these be a subversion or like a live omission of of what's actually happening? Like they're saying, this is what we're doing. They were doing it anyway. They've been doing it for the last two years. Why are people so mad? Like this is is an explanation. No, that's a great question. It is right. So I think on the one hand, they should be commended for the transparency yeah. of putting down on paper uh, what it is they're doing. I think if you read the guidelines and you look at what they've done for the last two years, it, it lines up. Like It shouldn't actually be surprising to anyone. Ultimately, what you have are people who disagree with the values, right? Mm-hmm. They disagree with the policies that they're pursuing. Um, and the concern that's animating, which is, is not trivial and it shouldn't be dismissed, is, is they're saying, look, that's not what courts are doing today. And if you're going to bring a bunch of cases under these kinds of theories – you're going to lose. And that is one, a waste of taxpayer resources. And two, it's a tax on all these businesses that are undertaking legitimate mergers and acquisitions. Uh, And now the deals may never happen and all these economic benefits and efficiencies won't be realized. Jobs could be destroyed, that sort of thing. You're going to be a a weight on the economy dragging it down because this isn't successful. Um, I mean, I think you could make that argument about the mergers that just get slowed down, but they ultimately fail to stop, right? It's just delaying things. Um, But it really uh, avoids the underlying question, which is, are they right? Are they right or are they wrong? Um, You know, are the deals that they want to stop anti-competitive or not? Uh, And that's the question you really have to wrestle with. Because if you're complaining about them failing to stop an anti-competitive merger, it's a bit of a hollow complaint. So it, it their 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 objection assumes the premise that all of these deals are actually okay. You know, they rely on the fact that they might pass muster under current case law in the courts, but that doesn't mean the courts are getting it right. And I think you see that in here. You see, now I I do think that all of the the obsession over the average year of the cases cited throughout the guidelines and and whatnot is a bit overblown. I mean, these sorts of cases are cited What's, regularly. What, what is that? Uh, so if you if you read through the guidelines, um, they frequently cite case law throughout. There's lots mm-hmm. of footnotes. This has never been done before, mm-hmm. incidentally. Um, no previous version of the guidelines had this kind of extensive citation to case law. Mm-hmm. Ironically, despite very funny considering people accuse Lena Khan of just making this shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we'll we'll get into the why that is too. But um, it, it, you know, it, it's it's kind of funny to accuse these guidelines. Well, what I've heard was people saying, hey, the 2010 guidelines were really based in the law and consensus economics. And, you know, they, those were really in line with everything we consensus were doing. Consensus economics. And, and <laughs> whatever that's Oh, word. boy. <laughs> uh, but these guidelines, they're going off the rails. They're ignoring the law and all these things. I'm like, well, these guys act, guidelines actually cite the law. Yeah. <laughs> the others didn't cite any law, didn't cite us. Like the 2010 guidelines don't cite a single case or a single economic study. And these actually cite extensive case law. Now, their argument is, well, all these cases are old, 
and they may nominally be good law, but courts don't really follow them anymore, right? Uh, which goes back to the whole, they're going to lose and it's a waste of resources. Mm -hmm. And um, I, they, I think they would say it's bad policy. Um, now, part of it, the, the cases cited in there, a lot of them are, are not only nominally good law, they're actively used, right? Brown yeah. shoe is a great example. It's cited in every merger decision. Yeah. The brown shoe factors are a, a common form of merger analysis. Uh, when looking at market definition, all these things come from brown shoe. Every single law school class is designed around seminal cases. Right. <laughs> and, right. And, and in the realm of economic regulation, most of these cases are sort of mid-20th century yeah. cases as America was fully industrializing. And that's when a lot of this like case law emerged. So yeah, and, and, yeah and that, that's important context as well. And and I mean, look, my, my frustration is the people focusing on what year is next to the case are ignoring what it's being cited for, right? I don't think the guidelines are, are citing it to say that we're going to stop a merger that has a 5% market share, right? That's what Brown Shoe did. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any court that would uphold that today. Um, I mean, I know there's not. I don't think even most of the most progressive people in the antitrust world, I don't think Lena Khan would try to stop a merger that had a 5% market share. No one's citing Brown Shoe for that proposition. But a lot of other parts of it are good law. So the whole like obsession over the year of the cases cited, I think, is a, a bit overblown. Uh, but it raises a really interesting uh observation, which is you have all these cases in the merger guidelines um, from the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, they're being cited here. They're, they haven't been overturned. Some of them are still cited regularly. Others, not so much, but they haven't been overturned. And yet everybody also understands that almost no district court or circuit court would rule that way today. Um, and so you have this divergence between what the law nominally is and what it is in practice. Uh, I think that was a frustration that there weren't more citations to recent circuit court or district court opinions. Um, there's not a lot of those to begin with. Um, I think, you know, Jonathan Cantor made that point at a FedSoc event last week. Um, and like, that's, it's true. Like there's just not a lot to work with. Um, and they may not view things this way, but a lot of this is because the Supreme Court has been silent. Right. They haven't taken a merger case uh, in, in since 1990 wow. uh, was the last one. Um, was that Microsoft? No, Microsoft was late 90s. I forget the the name of the one in, in 1990. But um, so we don't have like regularly updated guidance from the Supreme Court as to how to interpret Section 7. Um, and, you know, I, I think like conservatives should be worried about that. You know, we like to talk about the rule of law, following the text of the statute, following what courts have said. Uh, like you said, every law student is trained to go look up cases and see what's been overturned and what hasn't and what's the current law. Uh, and antitrust is a really peculiar space where you wouldn't know it from doing legal research or reading a case book um, that what is nominally good law is not really what's been applied in practice. Um so, I mean, I think there's benefit to resolving that one way or the other, and people can certainly debate which way would be better to go. Um, but, but I think that is a problem, and that's at root with a lot of these complaints uh, is this kind of divergence that hasn't been resolved by the Supreme Court. So, okay, this is a document of values. What are those values? What are uh, What's the gist of the values animating the Khan, Cantor, FTC, yeah. and DOJ? So two things jump out at me. Um, I, I really disagree with those who have implied that this is some wholesale revision, large, a huge turn away from how we've done things in the past. Um, when I read through the guidelines the first time, what I saw was a list of everything that I looked at 
when I was an FTC and DOJ attorney. Like this is basic stuff. Um, where you get to differences, I think, is is in the emphasis. So these guidelines definitely put a much heavier emphasis on structural presumptions. Um, so for those who aren't drenched in antitrust speak and economics, a structural presumption is basically saying, look, when a market is concentrated past a certain extent or when certain firms get beyond uh, a certain market share, you begin to presume that there's a harm to competition. Um, and it's this idea that there's a connection between the structure of a market, the number and size of the firms competing against each other, and the the conduct and the performance in the market, the actual behavior and whether or not they're being pro-competitive, helping consumers. One of the classic fields where, where this is often looked at is telecom markets, right? Like there's struck, there's fundamental differences between two three, four, and even five, like each, each new competitor fundamentally changes, uh, firm behavior. Right. So, you know, that was the old paradigm in antitrust. And eventually people came in with persuasive economic arguments and said, look, this doesn't always hold like you, sometimes we really do have markets. And I agree, like, this is true. You have a market where, uh, you actually need to grow bigger in order to compete better. Uh, you need to have a certain scale to reach a level of efficiency that allows you to produce better products at a lower price for more people. Um, it's it's hard to be, you know, producing your widgets at the lowest marginal cost if you're running out of your garage, right? You need scale. You need to grow bigger to 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 offer more to consumers. And so, what's the classic edge case there? You know, um, well, actually, telecom's a great example, right? You know what would the market look like if we had 15 cell phone providers, right? There'd be a lot of duplication of the networks that you have to establish. Um, and that would be more expensive, which means there's more cost to be sh shared over a smaller number of, of subscribers for each company. Mm -hmm. So that could be a case where, look, you don't want one and maybe you don't want two because that's a duopoly, but in three at least, you know, to have some competition. But if you get too much beyond that, are we in a situation where now you've got all these companies that have to reinvent the wheel? It's not like a telephone pole where you can just string up more wires and run it over the same place. Um, you're not going to have people sharing their cell towers because there's bandwidth limitations. Um, so people are going to have to put up more antennas for their separate networks. But because they're fragmenting the market, each company has fewer subscribers. So all of those fixed costs are being spread over a, a smaller number of people. So mm -hmm. we're going to have more expensive cell phone service that isn't arguably any better. Mm -hmm. um, and when they have those greater costs, because it would be more competitive pressure as well, they're going to feel like they can't invest in R&D and innovation as much. So then we could be slower to roll out new versions of technology and phones and networks and all of that. So there are absolutely markets where they the ideal competitive state is a, a smaller number of competitors than you might otherwise think is, is appropriate. Um, so people made that observation. It was persuasive because you could see real world examples where that played out. Uh, I think what went wrong was the exception to the rule became the rule, right? It kind of became the assumption. Um, and that certainly is the view of these guidelines. They're trying to go back closer to the structural uh, presumption side of the debate and say, look, we need to pay more attention again to the structure of markets, to the size and number of the competitors, because that that really is informative as to how concerned we should be about the state of competition there. Um, they still make an allowance right, for counter arguments that talk about, well, this market is different. And let's, let me show you the evidence, and the economics and the facts that support that. Uh, but that's the second part where I think they're different is in addition to putting more emphasis on structural presumptions, these guidelines, I think, are also more skeptical of economic and efficiency claims uh, of pro-competitive benefits and other things that you know 
you would think of as offsetting any risk of harm, right? So when you do a merger review or really any antitrust case, you look at the underlying risk to competition, whether it's a merger or potentially exclusionary conduct, uh, and you examine its effect on the marketplace, on consumers and competition. Um, and then you you ask, okay, is it creating any efficiencies or benefits that might outweigh our concern, right? So oh, a merger is going to get to 30, 40% of a market that might start to make us concerned. Uh, but what about maybe it's going to allow it to better compete against somebody uh, who has some edge and it's going to disrupt an entrenched incumbent, something like that. Um, lots of different ways that can play out. Do you consider that evidence to see if maybe that offsets your concerns and that you know, a presumption is just that. It's a presumption. It's not a definite ruling. It's not the end of the story. It's it's kind of saying, all right, this crossed a threshold where now we're assuming this is going to cause some kind of problem. So you're going to need to bring in evidence to show why that's not going to happen. Um, and that's where I think, you know, the, the 2010 guidelines were much more deferential to that kind of rebuttal evidence, uh, whereas these guidelines are, are definitely more skeptical. Um, you know, they're talking about the evidence needs to be verifiable. It needs to be passed on to the consumers. Um, it needs to be pro-competitive, all these sorts of things to say, like, you can't just have this sweeping speculative economic claims about trust us, innovation is going to be great. It's all going to be better. Like, do your math, right? Do your work, show your work. Uh, and, and actually demonstrate that what you're saying will happen will actually happen and it will benefit consumers, not just shareholders at the bottom line. Is a potential conceit by which to to maybe understand the difference between these two guidelines. You know, 2010 was kind of the peak of uh, tech optimism, utopia. Uh, we were, you know, full bore into the digital revolution and it seemed like all that was on the table was unadulterated goods. And merger guidelines today in 2023 are much more uh, cognizant of and aware of and, and accounting for the consequences of the digital revolution, how it looks different than maybe industrial age um, competitive landscapes uh, and and how different that economy is structured in terms of its just fundamental physics. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much that explicit optimism informed the 2010 guidelines, but the the retrospective has certainly informed these guidelines. Um, you know, and a great example is, you know, these the previous guidelines were 2010. Around that time was FTC's first Google investigation, which ultimately got shuttered with a slap on the wrist. Uh, and and it was in large part we know now based on recommendations from FTC economists saying, oh no no no, we don't have to worry about all these potential harms because. If they try to do this, people will step in. There'll be entry. They're not going to be able to hold on to market power here. Every single thing they predicted failed to come true, mm -hmm. right? It all went the exact opposite direction. And I think that sort of example, which we've seen in multiple industries over and over again now, uh, is informing this sort of approach where it's like, we can't take this for granted. A lot of these you know, economic theories were just that. I think there's been too much treatment of economics as some sort of like, divine oracle or science that, you know, you plug things into your calculator and outspits the uh, the outcome and you just trust that. And now, you know, right. Um, and, and people have, have called BS on that. So it just it's not working. It's things aren't playing out the way we expected, um, or at least the way it was expected was misdescribed to us because the average consumer looks around today at the economy and says, I don't like this. Like this isn't working for me. So whatever you're doing, something has to change. This hasn't been benefiting me. What are some of the primary criticisms that are made of the um, of the values laid out here and, and why do you think they're wrong? Um, 
I mean, I might agree with some of the criticisms. I'll say like if I had written the guidelines, they it wouldn't look exactly like that. Mm-hmm. There's certainly stuff in there that that I wouldn't have embraced or, or endorsed. Um, but I think the, the disagreement with the, the po- underlying policy uh, ultimately boils down to uh, are you more concerned about over deterrence or under deterrence? Right. It's the type one versus type two errors. And I think. Just explain that for people. Yeah, sorry. It's a type one error is a false positive. Type two is a false negative. And so I think the, you know, the whole law and economics crowd, it's like drilled into your brain that the greatest evil is a false positive. God forbid that we accidentally prevent a business from doing something that might have turned out to actually be OK. Um, and so that, I think, has been the animating uh, focus for a lot of antitrust enforcement for a long time is we have to avoid type one errors. Um, and courts have been the same way. Uh, and this is a, an area where I think, um, you know, we've been conservatives have been victims of our own success. Uh, we've been very, very good at getting judges put in place who want to be certain. They don't want to be speculating. They want to make sure that they're reaching the right decision. Uh, and they don't want to have government overreach. They don't want to have these false positives. Uh, and God forbid that they, you know, hurt somebody unjustly, right? That they impose something on them unjustly, which I mean, at the outset, those are good things that you want to judge that is concerned about being just. Um, but I think the result is that a lot of those judges were conditioned to gravitate towards this over overly economic view of antitrust, where um, we're very focused on avoiding false positives. And in order to do that, we can provide you a, a very strong sense of security that if you plug it into this formula, if you do this complex econometric analysis, we can tell you what's going to happen, right? We can help you with this predictive exercise to make sure that you get it right, or at the very least, that you're not getting it wrong where it matters. Um, and that was that was the theory, right? That's how it was sold. And I think what we're seeing now is more and more people saying, it, that didn't work out like that. It hasn't worked out the way we thought it would. It turns out that you know we, we've avoided false positives, but we've had a lot of false negatives as the cost. Um, and that I think that's the view in, inherent in these guidelines is to say, OK, we need to dial it back. Right. We need to be a little more skeptical of, of these justifications because we have evidence now that it doesn't always play out the way we're told it will. Uh, and it turns out there are significant costs to under enforcement of the antitrust laws. Uh, you know, economists like to talk a lot about externalities, and they can go on all day about the externalities of over-enforcement of the antitrust laws, lost jobs, lost efficiency, how the costs trickle down across the economy. Taylor Swift concerts exactly, going terribly. Exactly. You know, the most important <laughs> bits and services we have, uh, worthy of a Senate hearing. Yeah. Um, but there's not a lot of discussion of the social externalities, right? Like, what is the effect on our political system when you have so many extremely large corporations throwing money around, controlling speech, dictating their patterns of thought and behavior and commerce and um, communication with your family, your children. Um, those are substantial externalities. Those don't get, get factored into an antitrust case. And I'm not saying they necessarily should. I think you know when you get into that realm, um, you're talking about judges weighing political values mm-hmm. and economic values and deciding how to uh, how to distribute legal benefits. And we don't want that, right? We don't want lawyer or judges, unelected judges stepping in and making those decisions. But I think that it's reflective of some of the, the broader purpose of the antitrust laws. And both uh, Jonathan and Lena have been very explicit that, you know, there are political benefits to the antitrust laws. There are societal benefits to limiting the concentration of power in society. Conservatives are really, really good 
about talking about the the dangers of concentrated political power. For some reason, we've we've become seduced by the libertarians and have forgotten the dangers of concentrated economic power. And antitrust law is really meant to help deal with that. It's a secondary goal. It's not the primary goal, but it's a secondary goal. And because it is a secondary goal, I think it counsels in favor of an application of the antitrust laws that puts more concern about false negatives than what we're doing today, mm -hmm. right? To ensure that we're not under deterring, because if we're under deterring, then antitrust law fails to realize those other secondary benefits to the politics and society in our country that come from not having massively concentrated economic power. Well, and, and secondarily, those social consequences in an era where the sort of physics of economics is changing because of the digital age, those social consequences can be a bit of a metal detector for where there might be concentrations of power that under previous uh, standards or, or formula we're not we're not being picked up. It's it's not that oh this bad thing is happening in society, therefore we must do antitrust. It's well, how is this corporation able to have such a distortive effect on American society? It might be the case that they are of extraordinarily concentrated power, and that's something worth paying attention to on its own terms, not just because of the social consequences. Are there examples outside of the tech sector where this is particularly salient? You were, you were telling me before we, we started taping that you, know, you are an antitrust lawyer who has been forced to become a tech lawyer in some ways because that's been the primary venue where these questions have been assessed, but maybe give a bit of an overview of, of other places where this might be relevant. Yeah, I mean, I think you look at finance, you look at agriculture, um, you know, you look at look at the airline industry. Um, I, I think there's been a lot of areas where um, airlines. I don't think that has really societal impact, but you can see examples of people at least. Hey, I fly a lot. My society has changed. Maybe, actually, I might have to take that back. I say, who's happy with uh, their experience in an airport today, and who thinks that uh, the culture and mood you find in an airport airport today uh, is good for American society? Uh, and because if you have. A bunch of people closely concentrated who are extremely frustrated with their consumer experience in that moment. Um, not on the scale, I think, of like, you know, what Instagram is doing to kids or what Facebook is doing to public discourse. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in, in the you know, banking sector, you can it's not hard to see how massive concentration of not literal economic power, right, control over where wealth is, is uh, distributed um, has immediate effects on communities, which, you know, when you. When you impact the economic vibrancy of a local community, you're immediately impacting the culture. And we can see that in small towns all over the country that have been decimated. And you have more people strung out on meth sitting on the sidewalk than small businesses that are feeding families and, and communities. Um, so I think it, you can really extrapolate almost anywhere uh, it, from, from any part of the economy to see where those effects are. But on the flip side, look, I think there are examples throughout the economy of, of small and medium-sized businesses that are thriving. They're not you know, economically inefficient and just a bloat on, on consumers, but they're actually providing consumers and businesses quality products at fair prices while paying their employees a, a good wage and supporting their families and the communities around them. Um, so it's not black and white. It's not all doom and gloom. Um, but I think those those bad examples do jump out right when we encounter them because they have such a salient impact. So the history of these merger guidelines was that the courts started utilizing them last time around because of the sort of consensus mechanism that formed between the plaintiffs and the antitrust bar. Um, Presumably, these these merger guidelines are more controversial. What do you think the 
sort of domino effect of them coming out could end up looking like? Will courts end up adopting more of it? Um, because if they don't, then then maybe there is some credibility to the argument that that these are are distortive and, and unnecessary and inappropriate, a la Lena Khan's critics, because it 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 is that tax on companies or whatever. How are you thinking about what happens next sure. upon these? It, it, pre- presuming that these guidelines, as drafted, largely become the final product. Sure. Um, so a lot of it's going to depend on how quickly something can get to the Supreme Court. Um, and it's going to depend even on success in lower courts. Um, to, to really have a change in the law, you're going to have courts, you're going to need to have courts weigh in and agree with the framework here. Um, I think they've acknowledged, and I agree, like it's very fact specific. So, you know, my advice to the agencies would be pick your cases carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're when you're in an enforcement role, you're equally concerned. Obviously, you, you want to reach just outcomes. You want to make sure you're protecting consumers and doing the right thing. Um, but there's a strategy at a higher level as well of making sure you pick a case where you can get good law because bad facts make bad law, right? Sure. That's just a common thing for every lawyer. Uh, and I, I, you know, I do worry about some of the recent uh, enforcement actions. I won't go into specifics, but when you don't have good, bad facts, you risk making bad law. You risk, you know, giving a court the opportunity to kind of speak hyperbolically on an issue t- and, and push it even further, so that the next time when you have good facts, now the law is against you, right? So you have to avoid that. So if I were them and I want to get these guidelines enshrined in law, I'm picking my cases very carefully. I'm making sure that I have very, very solid facts um, and coming into court to make the strongest case possible and try to advance it. Uh, and then what they what they need to do is they need to get something in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, that's going to be difficult because, you know, the vast majority of mergers that are challenged, right? There's a lot of financing involved. These are usually the biggest deals. There's financing involved. There's business realities. They need to close the deal, move on in order for this to be successful. Vast majority of companies do not have the resources or luxury to stretch out a merger challenge and litigate something for years and appeal it all the way to Supreme Court. So if they're losing, they're just going to abandon, right? Um, So what you would need is, uh, you know, if if they're winning at a lower court, there's probably not going to be an injunction preventing them from closing the deal while one of the agencies appeals. So it's going to go through. You're going to have to have a situation where the FTC or DOJ just basically sticks it out and goes all the way to the Supreme Court and find out how they're going to rule. Uh, and then, look, if they if they rule against them and they say, yeah, we see what you want to do and we reject it, I think it would be extremely unwise and imprudent to continue pushing forward Um in the face of that opposition. At that point, right, you do have to go to Congress. You have to say, look, we tried. We thought we made a good case. Here's what we articulated. Court's not buying it. So if this is what you want, you're going to have to update the law to push it in one way or the other. We have a couple of years now of the FTC under Lena Khan and DOJ with Cantor there. Um, what are some of the the best cases did you think they've levied? And have we gotten to, to conclusion on those cases in terms of changing um, the state of the law um, and and if not, then then what are some of those cases where where we might get to see that? Um, I, I really, I mean, I'm I'm biased uh, as you can imagine, but I really like uh, DOJ's ad tech lawsuit against Google. I think it's a very sound theory. I think I mean, I've been looking at those issues for a long time, and and I've been saying for that entire time that that was really Google's weak spot mm-hmm. is how they're running their whole ad tech empire. I think. Can you explain that in a yeah? Short... Um, I mean, I could we could do a whole other podcast yeah. on that, uh, but. In, in a nutshell, you know, through a series of acquisitions in the early 2000s, culminating with their acquisition of DoubleClick, I think around 2010-ish, um, 
Google acquired basically the dominant players across the entire ad tech stack. So when you load a web page and the ads pop up, there's a lot going on in the background. You have the website saying, hey, I've got a spot to show an ad, puts it out on a server, connects to an exchange, which connects to another server for advertisers where they say, hey, I've got a product I want to add. They exchange information about who, what kind of viewer do you have? Where are they located? What do we know about their interests? People bid, the, the advertisers bid on who's going to place the ad. The winning bid then gets connected and served and shown on that website. Google is dominant in all three parts of that. They own the largest uh, service for advertisers, the largest service for publishers of websites, and the largest exchange that connects the two. And they really have a lock on there, especially when you add in all of the data that they have on us and what we're interested in and where we shop and what we buy and who we are, where we live, all of that. Um, And because of that, there's a lot of conflicts of interest, right? At the same time, they're selling their own property, you know, for ads through the same system, uh, and they can steer things in more favorable ways. They get to take a cut from both sides, and nobody knows who's paying what or how much. Um, so that's led to a lot of conflicts of interest, and and then strategies that they can implement to prevent competing ad tech companies from getting into the space. Um, so I, I think it's it's a really solid theory. It's a great case. Um, obviously, Senator Lee had a bill on that, the America Act, uh, that would break up that system to provide more competition, more transparency. So uh, the consumers in that space know what they're getting and paying for and that it's a fair price, um, which should ultimately lead to benefits to the entire economy. Um, Websites can make more revenue. We have more quality content online and advertisers can lower their costs, meaning we can have lower prices for the things we buy every day. Uh, So I think that's a really solid case. when I was at DOJ, I, I had What's the, the status of the case right now? So right now it's being litigated uh, in the Eastern District of, of Virginia. It hasn't started They're in discovery, um, but you know that's known as the rocket docket. So hopefully we'll, we'll I think that the trial is scheduled fairly soon next year. Um, so we're you know, I think we'll see something soon about how things only lawyers safe fairly soon next fairly, year. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, you know, that's that's another thing about antitrust is it like all litigation, um, but it, especially antitrust, it's very complicated. It takes a long time. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why we don't have more cases. It's, it's extremely expensive uh, to litigate. Um, and I know that's a concern animating. A lot of the people who are, are worked up about the guidelines is, hey, this is going to impose burdensome, expensive litigation on a bunch of companies. Uh, and again, the, the response is, okay, but is it is it justified or not? That's that's the real question we have mm-hmm. to get to the bottom of. Yeah. What are maybe some of the cases that you think um, are less ripe fruit that you look at? Eh, why, why are we doing this? If you can say. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, I, I don't know everything they have going on um, as far as investigations. A lot of the worst stuff, right? You, you, you poke around, you look into it, and then you realize there's no there there. Um, you know, I think the the challenge of, of Meta within the, the VR case was definitely a head scratcher for a lot of folks. Um, I know that the FTC's response is, well, the, the judge didn't throw out our theory. It's like, oh, okay, like that, the, the theory didn't change, right? Mm-hmm. We already knew that that was a viable theory. Uh, and that that did just cost a lot of resources for, you know, private parties. What was this case? Uh, This was uh, Facebook or Meta's acquisition of a a VR developer company called Within. Um, And the concern was that Facebook and Meta would have otherwise competed with Within by offering their own competing, uh, I think, like fitness activity apps in the virtual reality in the metaverse. Uh, And so FTC was concerned that if they bought them, they're snuffing out that future competition and they're going to lock up all the apps in the metaverse. Um, and the court said, you know, okay, the theory 
in theory is viable, but the facts just don't support it. Um, uh, so I, you know, that's something I would want to avoid is cases where we don't move the ball uh, on the theory even, uh, and the facts don't support it. And so you're just kind of spinning your wheels and wasting resources without any gain. This is kind of esoteric, but are are most of these antitrust cases in the same venues so that, you know, even the, even at lower courts, developing this case law is is sort of uh, you, you're not starting from scratch each time. And so it really is consequential. Or are these mostly in very disparate venues? No, they're, they're spread out. Um, I mean, typically it's where the company is based or mm-hmm. the conduct is has taken place. Um, so you might see more you know, in the, in the DC circuit, but, uh, but they're spread out Why? across the country just because that's where the agencies are. And okay. so if they've got the entire country to choose from, sometimes just convenience, you litigate in your home court. Um, but, but otherwise it, it tends to be where the companies are based. Gotcha. So for tech companies, it's a lot of Northern California, lot of or Southern circuit, California, yeah. or Northern California yeah. judges. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is your assessment of the state of antitrust on the right of center these days. Um, You know, you you worked for a senator who I think has, uh, deserves enormous credit for uh, actually keeping an open mind on things. You know, people might accuse Senator Lee of being a libertarian. I think that's largely incorrect. It's false. Um, I'll I'll go on the record. (laughs) False. You know, I've been in the room with him where he's looked someone in the eye and said, I'm not a libertarian. So just to dispel that myth. Yeah. Um, And and I think he's taken a very facts-based approach to this. He's he's been willing to hear out um, evidence, but Mostly, that's that's not brought all of his uh, all of his former fans and and now critics along with them. They've just they've just been like, oh, Senator Lee sold out to you know the fascists or whatever <laughs> they end up saying. Walk walk me through the landscape. I mean, you've been here since the heyday of uh, the Tea Party, um, when the idea of government doing a thing was communism. Yeah, tell us tell us what you think. Yeah, no, it's. It's one of the most fascinating uh, ongoing shifts and developments and debates uh, in D.C. right now. I think antitrust is uh, and the debate around antitrust policy is a subset of a larger movement within the right over how we should view economic power and the use of government power. Um, As I mentioned earlier, you know, conservatives are really, really good about saying big government is bad. We don't want concentrated political power. We know the danger to liberty when power, political power is concentrated in a few hands. You know, we have horizontal and vertical federalism, as Senator Lee likes to point out. Uh, we, we break everything up to protect people. If you're talking about politics, you'd think the conservative view is that big is bad and no one would object to that. Um, but suddenly we apply that to the economic space and you're a heretic, right? <laughs> if you say big is bad when you're talking about corporations or economics, well, what's wrong with you? Like you're a progressive socialist, what have you. But uh, I think what we're seeing now is a growing realization uh, on the right. And I would say it's, it's not even a realization. It's almost a return uh, to the con- authentically conservative understanding that concentrated economic power is just as dangerous as concentrated political power. Um, something Jonathan Cantor said last week, and I'll say he stole it from me. I'm just <laughs> um, but it's true. I think that that is the, the authentically conservative position. And what we're witnessing is essentially the divorce of conservatives from libertarians, right? We want to zoom out to the kind of uh, political philosophy writ large. We had an alliance between conservatives and libertarians in the mid 20th century because we all said communists bad. We're going to fight the communists. We're all on the same team. We set aside some of our differences, work together in a pretty successful movement. You know, communist Russia fell. 
You've got communist China, which is more authoritarian than, you know, any kind of, you know, I, I economic ideal or anything like that. The, the communist threat is not there as much now. So we've, we've returned our focus domestically. Everyone always knew that conservatives and libertarians had different social views, right? The libertarians are kind of these like fetishist freaks and all that. Uh, and the conservatives have families and we're wholesome and all that uh, when, when we do it right. Pornographers, payday lenders, drug right. salesmen. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, but we've forgotten that conservatives have different economic views than libertarians as well. And I think that's what's returning. And in, in large part, it's spurred on by people looking at the economy we have and looking at the challenges posed by different large economic, economic actors. And yeah, big tech is a big part of that, but they're not the only ones. Um, and so I think people are starting to say, hey, yeah, I don't have to think about these things the way some libertarian economist would. I'm not, I don't wake up in the morning worrying about my utils and how they're, I'm going to maximize them and all these mm -hmm. sorts of things. Like I'm trying to raise my family and provide <laughs> for them as best that I yeah. can. And some pervert with his charts is not right. going to convince you know, me. Like, <laughs> look, I, I've got six kids, so I trust me. I look at my grocery bill and I care about how much uh, the price of eggs is or bread. And like, it's a lot. Um, but I'm not going to say that, that low, maximally low prices and efficiency are, are God, right? That those are the highest good. In, in society, you know, the highest good is virtue and excellence. Um, and I think that is that's another authentically conservative value. And I think that's the side of the right that is witnessing a revitalization is realizing that being conservative doesn't mean offloading your mind to some economic theorist, you know, like your your social values are tied to your economic values. There's, there's a holistic approach to what it means to be human. We're not just numbers in a formula. Uh, and so we can't boil down everything we do into some you know, economic transaction or trade-off. There's a lot more at play here and a lot more to be taken into consideration when we're looking at economic policy. So I think that there's that. And antitrust is a subset of that. That, you know, antitrust is, is huge because it's probably the most economic, or I should say it's the area of law that's most directly aimed at the economy, right? We're dealing with economic structures and markets and how they're going to function. What's the nature of competition? How are these businesses going to interact and compete for our business? Um, so it, it's a natural place to go when you're looking at the distribution of economic power and wealth and control in society. Uh, and, and so that's what you're seeing there is that it's that starting to play out. Um, and then I think on top of that, um, you have a, a reconsideration of the role of government. And saying, you know, we all know that the government is there for national security, right? To protect us against foreign enemies that would invade us, keep us safe. Um, but you also have people pushing back against these libertarians. You know, the libertarian approach is, hey, private company, they can do what they want. If they want to rake you over the coals and squeeze every dime out of you, well, take your business elsewhere. Never mind, you don't have anywhere else to go. Tough luck, you know, start up your own company. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, they're not letting you start oh, your own wait, company. Oh, wait, I forgot, yeah. Start your own country. Oh, okay, maybe I will. <laughs> just, you know, you need to bootstrap your way up and buy an island. Um, and so people have realized that it's really a, a hollow promise. Um, Senator Lee had, had a, a great line uh, a year or two ago where he said, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a shallow conception of liberty if we would congratulate somebody for throwing off the shackles of big business or of big government only to be encumbered with those of big business, right? It, for the government to come out and say, hey, we've enshrined all these rights in the Constitution. We've protected the rights that God gave you, um, but you're on your own defending them from the corporations that are trying to take them away. Mm -hmm. 
what good is that, right? What good is the government if it doesn't defend me from those malicious actors, right? And so I think conservatives are coming around on the use of political power as well. It's not about punishing your enemies or an eye for an eye or, or being vindictive or pretextual. It's about acknowledging that the government has a legitimate role to play in protecting our economic liberties and our, our cultural values and like the economic thriving of communities. We don't have to just offload everything to the, uh, the, pr the private sector or free market and assume that a free market is self-perpetuating, right? If you're going to have a free market, it has to be fair. You have to have rules of the road. Somebody has to enforce those rules. We don't let, you know, when you, professional sports, you don't have teams playing a pickup game and they call foul on each other. We have umpires and referees for a reason. The government plays that role in the economy to make sure that we have fair competition so that it benefits consumers, right? The businesses are supposed to be working for us. They're supposed to be fighting over us, not dictating how we live our lives. Uh, and so that's where I think you've seen a realization among conservatives that, hey, the government has a role to play here. There is a role for political power to step in and say, no, that's not that's not the way people want to live. This is not the kind of society we want to have. And so we're going to prescribe your behavior. And we're not talking about blowing up industries and micromanaging the economy. Far from it. We don't have to go full like, you know, far left regulatory state. It's just saying we have laws on the books. Why don't we step in and enforce them to protect our constituents? That's all people are asking for. So getting a little bit more granular. What is the state of antitrust on the right in Congress? Do you feel like uh, members of the House and Senate are more receptive to these ideas than they would have been a long time ago? How do you maybe measure that or, or temperature check that? It, it's very much in flux. I, you know, over the the last three years that I was there, I saw a lot of encouraging developments. Um, you know, it, it can be a bit of a mixed bag. I think people are trying to find their footing. I think sometimes uh, sort of the top line political concerns can animate. Uh, or, or, or motivate where a member might come down on a specific issue um, as they're trying to kind of formulate, what is my philosophy here, right? What's my overarching uh, approach to this matter? Um, but there's, there's, there's a lot of flux. A lot is in flux. There's a lot of moving pieces. You know, I think there are good signs for this more sort of realignment approach to, to antitrust, uh, both enforcement and in, in politics. Um, but a lot's, you know, TBD. We have to see how it plays out. We have to see if the movement continues, um, whether this is just sort of a flash in the pan moment and we retrench back to the stereotypical traditional positions of each party or whether there's continued vibrancy uh, and, and effort to, to push the law in a new direction. Again, ultimately, it's it's the courts or Congress have to change something. If, if the courts aren't going to change the way they think about uh, antitrust law, and if Congress isn't going to update the antitrust laws, I think we're going to be spinning our wheels qu quite a bit. Um, but if one of those shows some sign of movement, I think we could see an avalanche. I think it only takes one decision to really tip the scales. And then, you know, maybe we stop a merger and the world doesn't end. God forbid. Uh, <laughs> then people might say, OK, maybe maybe this isn't the end of everything and, and we can be a little more aggressive and not worry that we're destroying the economy. Yeah, I guess one of the problems with antitrust policy might be that um success is quiet like if if you if you successfully enforce the law and prevent a merger it's not like you suddenly enter utopia it's yeah. that bad things don't happen right and yeah. so it's 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 got to be a tough thing for sort of yeah. political uh, fundamentally it's, it's, political it's forces like kind of like the, the bush administration telling us about all the terror stops yeah. terror attacks they stopped that we never knew about yeah right, right. Um, and, and so in, in some ways this might, might be the case that like again once appropriate laws are written structurally antitrust policy has to be an executive function it has to be a law enforcement yeah. function because making it political 
is ultimately a recipe for inaction. Yeah, it, well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the whole making antitrust political thing, I mean, as an antitrust lawyer and someone who's been in policy, I'm like, oh, this is fun. I'm like, this is a yeah. blast. Like, it's, this is the, the heyday right now. But it's not good long term. Like, you don't want law enforcement to be politicized. Uh, typically, you know, I think we see politics coming into law enforcement when there's a pervasive sense among voters that the law is not being enforced the way they thought it should be, mm-hmm. or the way they thought it would be. And I think that's where we are in antitrust is there's a lot of people increasingly saying- Or a political constituency decides that enforcing the law is bad. Right, right. Whether yeah, it's yeah. a Soros DA or, you know, or a libertarian, libertarian yeah, FTC exactly. officials. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, but you don't want that to persist, right? Yeah. You want to get to a place just like everything else where you trust that the law is being faithfully a- a- executed and enforced, uh, that, that justice is being obtained. So in the long run, I think it's bad for it to be political. But within this moment, and there's an opportunity to recalibrate things to make sure we get to that point where the voter, I mean, that's the end of the day. We're not ruled by economists. We're not ruled by experts. You know, it's not conservative to pass things off to experts and say, mm-hmm. you trust us. We saw how that went during COVID, right? It, it didn't work out well. That's a perfect example of what happens when you pass off responsibility to su- supposed experts. That's not how the American people deserve or have asked to be ruled. Uh, they have elected members of Congress to write mm-hmm. laws for the executive branch to enforce. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I think that's where the sentiment is, is, hey, we have antitrust laws on the book. It doesn't seem like you're enforcing them the way we wrote them. Something needs to change. We don't like the outcomes right now. Well, what? You know, the deranged ex-boyfriend of Lena Khan, the Wall Street Journal, Ed Board, seems to be doing is is saying that you know, she's the central planner. She's the one who's ruling by expert. It would I mean, obviously, that's is silly. But, um, you know, what, what what do you make of the the constant, consistent freak out against? Uh, yeah, her I mean, some people definitely have Lena derangement syndrome. <laughs> there's no doubt. And again, like, I mean, I've I've levied my fair share of criticisms. Um you know, both at, at theories and, and, and the actual management and administration of the agency. I have friends there now who, um, you know, aren't uh, aren't super thrilled to wake up and go to work in the morning all the time. Uh, and it, it's sad to see because I, I love that agency so much. And I know there's so many good people there. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's become almost a caricature, right? This just obsession with everything the FTC is doing and everything that Lena Khan's doing. And, you know, I don't think they would even acknowledge that a broken clock is right two times a day. Um, you know, they won't allow for any good outcome. Um, and I think, you know, some people allow, we, we've gotten to a point, I, I witnessed on the Hill, right, that people would come in and we're at a point now where every single thing the FTC does, like, oh, this is more overreach, this is more ridiculous neo-Brandeisian theory and all of that. Um and so it's a bit of boy who cried wolf, right? That every single thing going on at FTC is somehow now suspect and questionable. Um, and I think that's unfortunate because they do a lot of good work. And 95% of what goes on over there are staff who are, again, are extremely experienced and qualified and hardworking and care about reaching the right outcome. Um, and they they have a really important job. And now everything's being called into question um, because of, of you know the political climate that's surrounding it. Yeah. Um, one of the benefits that subject matter experts have is that they are able to forecast when something's coming on the horizon that the public is not yet paying attention to. In the world of, of any trust, what is that thing right now? What, what What is it that you see off in the distance that like is animating your day-to-day life that no one else is? There's a lot of talk about big tech. And a lot of the talk in antitrust has been about big tech. And I think some people who are concerned with how the, antitr- the enforcement agencies are approaching it 
you know, the constant refrain is, okay, it starts with big tech, but it's heading to other industries. I don't know if a lot of people listen to that, but but that's definitely where it's going. Um, you know, whether it will gain as much political traction when it's applied to other industries remains to be seen. But I, I think that's that's definitely coming. We've seen some of that already, but I think um, there's more coming. What do you think the low hanging fruit there is? Um, I think the banking sector. Yeah. I mean, they're they're re, they're reviewing the banking. I mean, the stated the basically basically de facto policy of the Treasury Department is like, yeah, SIBs. That's all. That's where you should bank. Just bank there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the too big to fail is kind of you know translated the into official policy the of the land. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but look, they're they're revising the bank merger guidelines right now. Um, I think there's going to be more focus. There have been increasing um, enforcement actions. DOJ brought uh, a case to to stop Visa apply, acquiring. Plaid, which not directly a bank issue, but it's in the finance sector. Mm. I think there's a lot of focus. There was a report out the other day that there's another investigation into Visa's debit practices. Uh, I think you have a lot of conservatives looking at the banking industry from like a debanking perspective. Um, and when you start to ask those questions, you're worried about your bank kicking you out for your political views. Mm-hmm. You think, well, okay, well, I'll go somewhere else. <laughs> what are your options, yeah. right? Like, go find a non-woke bank that can give yeah. you decent checking. Yeah. Um, hey, a lot of grifters have raised a lot of money, so they're going to make a non-woke bank. <laughs> I don't think it's worth so yet. So, <laughs> I, I think like industries like that, where when when you have a concentrated industry and high levels of consumer dissatisfaction, people start asking, "Why don't I have more options?" Mm-hmm. Well, there used to be this other company. What happened to them? They got bought. <laughs> what about that other one? They got bought, right? And eventually, somebody's going to start doing the math and looking back at the the history in various markets when they try to figure out why they don't have more options or better options, and it's because they've all been systematically acquired. And, and so that, I think, is going to is going to lead to a lot more scrutiny in those types of industries. Criticize your own side here. What, where, where do you think that you know maybe more politically exuberant uh, people on the right might be going too far with some of the vision of antitrust? If I if I had to maybe narrow it, um, you know antitrust as 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 hammer for all nails yeah well that's where i was gonna go is is i think there's a view that it's some kind of panacea well two two problems one that it's a panacea that antitrust can somehow cure all of our societal ills um or all of the problems and this you see this on the left too like matt Matt stoller's answer to every question is (laughs) break them up (laughs) Um, Which, like, as, as as a policy professional, that shtick is, is sort of important to have. Like, people call you when they have an antitrust question. Always got to be selling. Always like, got to be but, selling. But you've got to always be, you know, yeah. the, the, the best policy professionals are ones that are, you know, kind of in a padded cell somewhere, just like talking at the walls about their chosen topic. And then occasionally someone calls them it's and the they first, talk to them. <laughs> the first rule of politics is stay on message. You got to yeah. be on message every time. Um, yeah, so the idea that antitrust is some kind of panacea that it can solve every problem, right? Like this came up a lot in the censorship debates, and I'd say, yeah, like it's a problem that we have concentrated markets with with few or no alternatives, and that certainly exacerbates it, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, a tech company that knows you don't have anywhere else to go can get away with treating you like crap. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a problem, but that doesn't mean you can solve everything mm-hmm. with the antitrust law. Um, the second has been, you know, the, I think sometimes it's been pretextual, right? And I, I saw this during uh, the last Congress. Uh, I'm not going to name any names. I don't want to embarrass anyone, but there were certainly members uh, who, you know, were jumping onto bills because it's like, oh, this is going to hurt big tech. I'm in. Uh, and so like, you do have to look at the substance, right? Like not everything that a large corporation does is bad and not every bill that's bad for big tech or any other firm is a good bill. Um, and so I think... It, Antitrust is extremely complicated and complex and fact specific, and every antitrust lawyer will tell you that. And so you can't just jump into something without mm-hmm. you know th- being thoughtful about it. You have to be careful because there is. And again, the people that are are freaking out about 
antitrust enforcement right now are not wrong that there is a danger to misusing it, right? I don't think they're doing a good job of prosecuting their case in specific examples of, of why it's being misused. Mm-hmm. But in theory, yeah, if it's being misused, it can be disastrous. Uh, and so if you want to come in and, and use antitrust to fix a problem, you need to make sure you know what you're doing and how to do it and that you're not going to make things worse. Yeah. Um, if you were going to advise the next Republican president on what he should do on this issue broadly, what should he be thinking about? Personnel is policy. That's it. Um, I think some of the worst mistakes in antitrust enforcement in the last 20 years have been cowardice in the agencies Mm -hmm. Uh, as people not pulling punches, right? Not bringing the cases they could have, Mm -hmm. um, getting worried, too worried about losing in court. Obviously, again, we don't want to be wasting resources Mm -hmm. and just firing off complaints willy-nilly. But it's a temperamental but, bias thing, right? And lawyers are already temperamentally they're conservative. And, and a lot of these folks are saying, like, I got to go back to private practice. I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want to be the guy that brought that losing case yeah. or, or piss off this industry and they won't hire me to Yeah, it's kind of embarrassing and, how often a lot of our agency heads, either before or after, tend to be general counsel at the pertinent industry <laughs> that they were in. I won't name yeah. any names. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, like personnel is policy. You need people who are willing to, you know, be thoughtful, but take risks uh, and and have a deliberate plan uh, to pursue to improve enforcement. And obviously, it's going to depend on what the the next Republican president's views are. Um, but the personnel are, are really what make the difference. To put cool people in at DOJ and FTC. That's um, the plan. Look, uh, you, you, you're talking my shop when you say personnel is policy. Um, Mark, where can people keep up with what you're thinking and saying on these issues and many more? How can they contract your law firm, I guess? I don't yeah, know. Sure. If you, know, <laughs> if you want to hire me, uh, you can go to crescentmetter.com. I, we have contact information there. Uh, I am on Twitter. I don't tweet a ton. Oh, you're uh, starting to more. And I a little bit it. more now that I, I'm no longer shackled by, uh, you know, working for uh, a politician. You never want to get in front of your boss. Um, but now I feel I do feel a little bit more at liberty. Um, so but yeah, I mean, what's yeah. your Twitter handle? Uh, it's MR Metter. OK, uh, it's pretty simple. But Very yeah. good. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me so soon after leaving the Senate. Um, and thank you for everything you do. Excellent. Thanks. Hopefully you enjoyed that. You know, I'll, I'll I'll definitely step out of line here by saying that when Mark says that the next Republican president or aligned person in general uh, takes over, that they should hire aligned people, that personnel is policy. Uh, Mark should probably be one of those people. I would highly recommend to any presidential candidates listening to this show that that Mr. Meter would make a fantastic appointee to any number of roles related to antitrust enforcement. He did not tell me to say that. He'd be horrified if I was saying it. But he truly is one of the most high-impact, talented individuals that we have working on this issue and many others here in Washington. Um, as always, go to AmericanMoment.org where you can rate and review our podcast. Uh, you can find Amcanon, the backlog of this show. You can find programs that we have upcoming. You can reach out at AmericanMoment.org slash join. You can apply to work for us. We're hiring uh, for a personnel manager position and much, much more. Thank you guys as always for listening. It is always a minor miracle that you do. We'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.